The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at TNTradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks. All right, folks. TFI Fridays. Thank you for joining us here at TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Two hours of action-packed news and analysis coming to you over the next two hours. We're going to be connecting with a few very interesting people uh, to shed some light on some very, very important issues. In the first hour, we're going to be connecting with geopolitical analysts based in Europe. In my uh, estimation, really one of the best uh, out there, Glenn Deason, is going to be joining us in the first hour to talk about a number of things, including the situation in Israel with Palestine, the war crimes, the genocide convention, and also Ukraine, but uh, the emergence of the multipolar world, the decline of U.S. hegemony. We're going to touch on all of these things during this upcoming segment in the first hour, and uh, Glenn is absolutely fantastic on all of these fronts. Now, also in the second hour, we'll hopefully catch up with Basil Valentine's got some breaking news he's going to bring to us uh, at the beginning of the second hour. Sometime around then, we'll connect with Basil. We'll get those live updates from him, breaking news. And then we're going to go for more breaking news. And we are going to basically release a few bombshells exclusively on this program with our legal correspondent, Matthew Russell Lee for Inner City Press, who is right in the middle of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, and he has the inside track and we'll reveal some things that have not been mentioned in the media yet. We'll do it on this show in the second hour, so you don't want to miss that. Welcome to everybody in the TNT chat room as well. Great to see you guys in here. Get ready for a fantastic program. Now, uh, on breaking news in terms of world news, I want to highlight this latest one and then try to debunk it because uh, most mainstream media people or dare I say, even some independent media people will just take these headlines at face value, regurgitate them as if they were somehow true. The latest one is that ISIS, ISIS claims responsibility for the terrorist attack in Tehran, which has killed uh, somewhere around 100 people, wounded another 250 a uh, horrific terrorist attack. Uh, what, what what can we call it? Thursday, you could call it suicide bombings or as IEDs. It's unclear uh, what the extent of it was, but looks like they're calling it a suicide bomb attack. ISIS is claiming responsibility for it. Now, when you read that headline, it's right across the mainstream media. You know your brave mainstream media journalists are not going to question that. They'll say, ah, ISIS uh, claimed responsibility. But we're going to ask the question, oh, where did ISIS claim responsibility? Where was this? Apparently, they're claiming it's on ISIS's official Telegram channel. So if you subscribe to ISIS on Telegram, the ISIS Daily or breaking ISIS uh, updates, I mean, it's ridiculous as uh, ISIS having their own official Telegram channel. Who is ISIS? Who is ISIS? Who is behind ISIS? Because they're not independent. There are state actors behind ISIS. Anybody who doesn't believe that or understand that or want to inquire more on that front, um, you're just basically an automaton. You have no uh, independent thought or agency. You literally are just going around watching the bouncing red ball like the schmoo. You have no clue. So let's delve into this a little bit here. The claim is 
the Islamic State group, has claimed responsibility for this attack. And this happened in the commemoration of the U.S.-Israeli joint assassination of General Qasem Soleimani. Uh, and also with him was the commander of the Hashtal Shabi, Abu Mahdi Malhendes, who was the leader of the Iraqi PMUs, Hashtal Shabi. Equally important uh, in many people's estimation as Qasem Soleimani, especially if you're from Iraq. Now, ISIS is claiming responsibility for this strike on the anniversary, the four-year anniversary at the funeral at the funeral uh, site of Qasem Soleimani, and it's a violent attack. Most countries, I mean, if this happened in the United States at Arlington Cemetery, uh, with like let's say the uh, commemoration of. Uh, just take your pick. I don't know the the death of JFK, for instance, or some other national hero, and a terrorist attack broke out. How long do you think it would take the United States to react, to bomb somebody, to attack somebody, whether that person they're attacking, that twenty four hour knee jerk reaction? We believe it's quote uh, fill in the blanks. Bakr al Baghdadi, Osama bin Laden, ISIS, the Khorasan group, or whatever, high value targets. Or they could blame Hezbollah or Hamas, probably. But if they did, you could be sure the U.S. would have launched some kind of a strike, either an airstrike or a cruise missile strike, probably within 24 hours. And then that would make the headlines, and the U.S. president would puff out his chest and sort of make some big statement to the country uh, from the White House, from the Oval Office, with the desk the mahogany desk, and we say, oh, I ordered my uh, joint chiefs to take decisive action uh, in response to this horrific act. America will not stand for this, whatever. That, that would be before any evidence was gathered, literally just find somebody, bomb them, attack them. Now, that's literally how the U.S. would do it and has done it in the past, okay? So have you seen Iran do this? No. No, and and the timing of it is right on the heels of Iran breaking up an Israeli espionage network in Iran, and I believe uh, sentencing some of those members to death. Okay, so logically, I might look at this as a retaliation by the Israelis for breaking up their spy ring in iran maybe you could look at the, look at it that way certainly that seems to be more plausible than isis is doing it secretly not saying anything about it for two or three or four days and then all of a sudden you see something drift out on a telegram channel and the mainstream media is right there to pick it up oh yeah they're right there this is like a well-oiled propaganda machine isis is the gift that keeps on giving ISIS is the gift that never fails to deliver on schedule every time. And it's funny that uh, if ISIS is the most extreme Islamist group, how come ISIS has never attacked Israel or any Israeli interests uh, or said anything about Israel for that matter? I mean, it's just frankly bizarre. So, but anyway, a lot of people will make accusations about ISIS receiving uh, U.S. or Western weapons during the Syrian war, during this dirty war on Syria that lasts over a decade, okay? A lot of people have made these accusations, have pointed out, have shown receipts. We've also seen some other dubious ISIS commanders, like in Libya, who are unmasked, 
with links to intelligence services, including Israel. Okay, this isn't me. This is all over the uh, the internet. People are reposting this material as we speak right now in light of the recent events. So all we're saying is we need to keep an open mind as to what the possibilities might be because if you are completely dialed into the official narrative on this, uh, you are probably none the wiser going forward and history will just repeat itself over and over again. That's why we're bringing it up on other world news Interesting comment by a former advisor to Zelensky. I think he's former, could still have his ear. Uh, Arestovich, Alexei Arestovich is basically saying that Ukraine will not be welcome in NATO or the EU. He's basically making this admission. He's an interesting cat to follow because he's always got some very timely uh, opinions and he's opining on a lot of things. He's a little bit back and forth on a number of issues. But anyway, he said this. It's made it into some media coverage, and I think he's kind of echoing the truth. There's a lot of truth coming out of Ukraine right now from Kiev because I think the penny has dropped. You're starting to see some splits. You're starting to see some honest uh, takes coming out, realizing that they may have taken the wrong turn by throwing their lot in with the United States, uh, with NATO uh, in February of 2022, and what a horrific mistake that was for the country of Ukraine. They had other routes, they had off ramps, uh, as opposed to going into a full blown war, uh, conflict with Russia, they had other options, they didn't take them. Why didn't they take them? Was that their decision alone or was that the decision of Washington, London and other world powers? And the question is, uh, will they pay the political price in Kiev, whoever is in power now, Certainly, there's going to be a price to pay for what's transpired over the last two years. Hardly a victory against Russia. The country is smaller. The GDP has been cut effectively in half. The population is approaching being cut in half. I think it's probably they're down about 40% their previous population. So land, economy, population, these things have all shrunk. Ukraine is not the state it was in 2022. Uh, it's just not. Uh, it's something else now. A lot of people are saying this is going to become a rump state on the fringe, on the borderlands of Europe, on the borderlands of Europe. Let that sink in for a moment. And uh, we'll maybe discuss these and other issues. Definitely we'll be dialing into the Middle East uh, in the next segment with our next guest, Glenn Deason. Looking forward to this conversation. Stay with us. You are watching and listening TNT, Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Hennings, your host. We'll be right back. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travelers from terrorists, hijackers, or violent drunks, or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. 
At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Kennington, your host. We're still in hour number one of this live broadcast. Thank you very much to our TNT chat community. I see the people moving into the chat room there. That's the red bubble in your lower right-hand corner. Go to tntradio.live. You'll see that community there. That's where you want to be during the live broadcast. Appreciate you guys. Listen, we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to take a more broader view here uh, of the Middle East, of what's going on uh, in the Eurasian zone as well. And we're going to be talking to... Uh, a fantastic geopolitical analyst, author, and great political commentator, Glenn Deason, joining us right now from Norway. Glenn, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Glenn, uh, I, there's a lot of things we we, we want to try to cover here. I'm obviously I'm going to recommend that people follow your ex Twitter feed because it is a great source of information and timely commentary on all the breaking news and the important issues that are going on internationally. Glenn, now uh, my my uh, view of you, Glenn, over the years has been uh, a lot of it has been you know uh, Ukraine, Russia, European geopolitics. You've also pivoted to the Middle East in the last uh, three or four months because of what's happening. And uh, a lot of us have had to pivot uh, to this region as well. And we haven't spoke about this yet, but just give us your obser observations and your kind of feelings and thoughts over what has transpired uh, in, in Palestine, Israel since October 7th. Uh, just lay that out for us and then we'll we'll move into other areas. But go ahead. Well, I think what happened uh, in Israel and Palestine is quite significant because uh, at the moment, uh, I don't think we can go back to the way uh, things were. And uh, of course, this was never really a sustainable uh, situation either because, uh, uh, well, for uh, how, how would you organize this region? Uh, you know, if only about half the pers uh, half the population are Jewish. I mean, the, the main problem is, uh, you know, if you accept a two-state solution, then of course you can give... Uh, a national state to both uh, uh, Israel and the Palestinians, uh, one state each. But given that Israel sabotaged the two-state solution for so long, uh, there was not really any solutions. I mean, they they tried to run it uh, under occupation and as an apartheid system. Uh, but given that this hasn't been working, I think now they have gone in for ethnic cleansing instead. And uh, yeah, some might even say genocide. And I and I I think that. This is not accidental. I think that this is uh, 
uh, simply the, 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 the only solution they have left. Because if you don't have two states, uh, you don't want to live uh, in the same state together, because, well, then it wouldn't be a Jewish nation state. Um, what, what else is there except apartheid or cleansing uh, the region of uh, the Palestinians? So I think that uh, uh, it has gone to yes, yeah, such a great length now that, uh, yeah, there's no way going back anymore. And I guess what's frightening here is that uh, there doesn't seem to be a proper solution to this conflict either. Glenn, you know, in the past, we, we've we've seen um, Israel with the heavy hand in Gaza previously um, in various other operations, 2014, 2012, 2008, and always, not just in Gaza, but elsewhere, but always the United States or the international community would kind of come in to restrain Israel at some point. They'd say, look, that's enough. We need to, you know, uh, dial this back a little bit. Um, it appear to be coming back to some kind of at least talks or something like this. In this case, Glenn, none of that call, none of those calls for restraint happened. In fact, it was the opposite. The EU weighed in total support from day one. The United States, Britain, other countries. To me, this is a big sea change in how the West and the Western powers are, you know, treating this region why has this happened and what does this say about the changes in the geopolitical landscape well it's a good question because obviously the united states has always been very supportive of israel uh, but at the end of the day as to do with all of their allies they look after america first so you know to what extent it is in the u.s national interest but um but uh, in this instance, uh, it seems like this is going very much against American interest, uh, as they need to preserve their relations with all of uh, the other countries in the neighborhood, you know, from uh, Turkey to Egypt. So the Americans are alienating uh, a lot of states in the region. And uh, even it will go against what America claims to be its policies, because the U U.S. claims to support the two-state solution. However, they're, they're effectively funding this war against the Palestinians uh and uh, assisting israel in denying a two-state solution and you know they also say that they want uh, israel to be more cautious uh you know more careful about uh, the collateral damage against the civilian population or at least you know not targeted directly and you know they, this really does it anyway so uh, but america is the one who enables it so it's quite strange to see the united states in this respect uh, go against its own interests and uh, uh, it's uh well one can point to the particularities of this government perhaps some would point to the strong israeli lobby in the united states um others would uh, maybe look at how this uh, began or how uh, how it evolved because i think many of us uh, were quite shocked on the 7th of october when hamas attacked uh, given no, not that they would attack as you know it's quite reasonable for them to resist but uh, the attacks on the civilian population so i think the first impulse much like the europeans was uh, to pledge their full loyalty to hamas now sorry to to israel saying that you know this was unprovoked uh you know we fully support israel and then kind of israel uh, ran with this and began to uh well effectively now carrying out the genocide and i think uh, it's become it's a uh, difficult to walk back this support uh, i think the europeans have been more critical in voice but beyond beyond that uh you know into rhetoric there's not much there and the americans uh 
Well, again, they seem to be defending Israel more than Israelis. At least Israelis are recognizing what they're doing, uh, but uh, the Americans are seemingly providing a cover. So, uh, it's uh, I, so I think it could be uh, many different variables. I think uh, for the Europeans, given that we're uh, currently in fighting a proxy war against the Russians, we become more dependent on the United States. So I guess the Europeans are a bit cautious as well, not to alienate the Americans. So I don't think it will be only one specific reason, but uh, a multitude. But I do definitely agree with you that this is something different. Uh, as, uh, you know, remember back at uh, Nixon, <laughs> who made this argument, you know, we can't always support Israel. Like America has to come first. Our, their, there is uh, some common interest, uh, a large common interest, but uh, we, we can't sacrifice uh, national interests for Israel. Uh, but that's exactly what they're doing at the moment. I think you made a really good point there about Europe, because Europe is very important, as is, of course, the United Kingdom. It gives the appearance of a, a coalition or some kind of a consensus in the West on major foreign policy issues. But uh, always in the past, there's always been European countries that have uh, stood up for the Palestinian issue. And it, it was almost like you could just rely on that all the time. And Scandinavia as well, uh, Norway, Sweden, um, have always been sort of somewhat removed from the American consensus enough uh, to kind of inter interject and maybe try to balance out the conversation a little bit. But that's a big that is a big sea change, actually, because I think Ukraine has uh, solidified um, that pro-U.S. Uh, position on all of these issues. So I think you, uh, you, you've you touched on something really important there, Glenn. That that really takes the, the, the situation out of balance, heavily balanced on the U.S. Uh, vantage point on, on all geopolitical issues. But um, yeah, going forward, Glenn... What do you think about the U European Union asserting itself immediately? Ursula von der Leyen flying to uh, Tel Aviv. They're projecting the Israeli flag on the European Parliament. So this is kind of a new territory as well because it means that individual EU countries, they don't really have an independent foreign policy. Or is that is that where Brussels wants to take things? Well, the EU has also gone in a very different uh, direction. So if you read, for example, the academic literature on the EU or well, or just uh, any look at any of the speeches of the European Union from the 1990s and 2000s, uh, the main message they want to get across is there were a different kind of actor. You know, there were a civilian power, there were a normative power. They, you know, they didn't engage in this traditional geopolitics. They would solve the world's problem through values and, uh, you know, uh, diplomacy so uh, but von der Leyen of course she has made it clear that you know uh, we need to have a geopolitical uh, EU and uh, that's why I think that uh, uh, in this effort to make themselves a geopolitical actor uh, they're throwing away something very important because now uh, effectively the EU has made itself uh, well uh, I would say a complicit, make itself complicit in ethnic cleansing because, and even genocide, because they're the one, uh, you know, refusing to criticize Israel. They are, you know, again, we're waving the Israeli flags. They, you know, in some places, uh, I think it was France, they banned uh, in pro-Palestinian uh, protests. So they they put their full weight behind it. So suddenly they went from being this normative actor to not just being a geopolitical actor, but being one who would. Uh, uh, now indirectly endorse ethnic cleansing. So it's, it's quite extreme. And again, this didn't come out of nowhere. This is uh, uh, first they 
the, their actions in Ukraine was quite interesting because uh, you know they used the money from the peace funds to send weapons meanwhile you know from day one uh, Borrell and the rest of the EU elites said that you know this would be sol resolved on the battlefield nobody in, in almost two years now have uh, asked to sit down with the Russians to even talk to find see if there's a diplomatic path instead they're just going uh, full in on uh, this has to be war uh, it's sold on the battlefield again uh, fighting with Ukrainians and, and after that of course you go into uh, the, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan where the entire Armenian population got uh, cleansed from the Garden of Karabakh and again very silent approval I would say given that uh, this was seen as a way of pulling the Armenians away from Russia and this Eurasian Economic Union and you know uh, try to pull it into the Western sphere so uh, this new geopolitical EU is uh, I think uh, the, the effort to become something new uh, a powerful actor they abandoned one of the strengths they actually did have and this this is kind of a disturbing uh, space that we're moving into in the West, uh, Glenn. The transatlantic sort of zone is that, as you said, preferring to settle it on the battlefield, uh, giving a implicit green light to ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, you have you know enemies, perceived enemies of the West, um, moving in lockstep. Is this a very dangerous time in history, Glenn? Because have there been times in history where you've had similar uh, trends, uh, similar things, phenomenons happening, preceding major world wars or major conflagrations involving different nations? Is that the sort of thing that we need to be concerned about? Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a very uh, destabilizing or uh, yeah, difficult time. Uh, not just time, I think 2024 is going to be a very problematic year as well, because uh, I think this year, will be the year that Ukraine collapses and also uh, some regional war will probably spark now uh, based on what's happening in Palestine and Israel. I think on the wider uh, frame of things, I think it's a, a change of world order as well, because keep in mind that uh, modern world order was based on a balance of power between sovereign equals. This was the basic idea ever since the peace of uh, uh, Westphalia in 1648 but uh, after the cold war we had a very unique position uh, we can effectively restore another rome if you will uh, uh pax americana or you know unipolarity in which there's one center of power based on universal values so this was uh, what we all also refer to as liberal hegemony uh, this was americans were very explicit this piece will be based on having one center of power the americans being all dominant and its security documents said you know no other country can even aspire to, to rival us, and this will be the source of stability. Uh, and also, uh, this will you know, be a benign international system, and you know, liberal democracy would uh, be supreme, supreme. So this will be uh, the source of peace. However, 30 years later, obviously, this hasn't worked. Uh, uh, very predictably, unipolarity ends because you know the power is transferred from the core to the periphery. The US depletes all its resources. Values such as democracy and human rights are not used to constrain anymore. Instead, we use these values to enable the use of force. So whenever we, you know, talk about democracy and human rights, that's usually when we uh, load the bombers onto our flight planes. So, so this is um, 
this is now being more and more rejected. And what you see now is a multipolar international system already having emerged. So you're having new centers of power, you know, China, Russia, many of these countries are now opposing the US, even allies from Turkey to Iran, sorry, to India uh, are now saying, you know, we want to be able to diversify our economic connectivity. We can't be too dependent on the West. Look what's happening in the Arab world, for example. And uh, I think so. I think this is why it's so unstable because the unipolarity is already gone, but the multipolarity hasn't really asserted itself. Uh, that is, uh, the Americans are trying to pull back to unipolarity by defeat its, defeating its strategic rivals, so the, defeating the Russians, defeating the Chinese, and uh, so and while the other rest of the world, I would say, outside of NATO, are trying to pull the world in a more multipolar framework, where you see organized around institutions such as BRICS become less dependent on Western technologies, industries, transportation corridors, banks, currencies, and such. So I think that this is why there's, there's effectively an absence of order at the moment, because we, we don't even agree on the basics, which is uh, you know how states should engage with each other, what are the basic rules, uh, what are the norms. So this is, uh, I think, one of the, this is what would explain why the Americans are now going to war seemingly against both yeah, the Russians, Chinese, the Iranians, and you know, God knows who else. Now you brought up an interesting point, Glenn, and you know, from an American perspective, uh, a lot of people here will view U.S. power, U.S. hegemony, U.S. dominance, normally in terms of their military power and their financial muscle. And that's a sense of pride and a, a, this realization that they have this power, military and financial power. But what you're talking about there, historically, how empires are able to exist or unipolar hegemons able to exist, need to have other countries um, rally around them in support of these universal values you're talking about. So isn't, isn't that where the United States has is losing its footing and becoming a declining hegemon in that um, it's abandoned uh, at least the perception of these universal values? In other words, the U.S. can no longer be seen as an honest broker, e even on the surface. I know the world is not perfect, but... And I think a lot of Americans have not picked up on this, and some have, but many haven't. And they don't realize, I don't know, is it true that maybe that that is a more uh, uh, crucial source of legitimacy and power as much or in sometimes even greater than military or financial might? But uh, what what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. Because hegemon and or empire, it tends to drain on the resources of the hegemon over time. Now, this can, of course, be in terms of treasury, its economics, which the U.S. definitely has suffered. Uh, but it can also be in terms of legitimacy, because uh, um, look at uh, the standing of the United States in the world. It is dropping. And this is, you know, again, this is why it's also a shame for the United States that this is happening, uh, you know, because uh, just a quick data we, we often tend to often think of being pro-american anti-american but but the argument should be why why would this be good for the united states it's uh, depleting its resources its main rivals are now uh, collectively balancing the united states i mean look at all these countries coming together to balance the americans they would if the United States didn't demand a dominant position in the international system, uh, they would uh, probably be uh, balancing each other to a greater extent. So uh, it's, um, and, and meanwhile, 
yeah, the, the Americans are losing legitimacy, economic might, uh, military might, and you know they re- they're realizing they're spending more money on military security. Meanwhile, they're getting less influence and uh, more hostile pushback by their adversaries. So I think that all of this is very uh, yeah counterproductive, and uh, the, the legitimacy is something also uh, not not just of of the U.S. ruling, but 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 the, the entire rules of the international system. Because keep in mind, when international law under the UN Charter came in place after the Second World War, there's a balance of power, and international law tends to be a reflection of this international distribution of power. Now, when you have uh, a multipolar system, or at least then bipolar, uh, both sides agree to an international system based on sovereign equality. That is, you know, you you give up some flexibility in your foreign policy in return for predictability. So you have mutual constraints. That is what is defining international law. Now, after the Cold War, uh, there's unipolarity. Now, why would the hegemon want to constrain itself? It doesn't make any sense. So you begin then to, not you, sorry, but the the hegemon would then begin to introduce uh, new principles in international law, which reduces constraint on yourself without reducing constraints on the other. So, so what is done? You introduce ideas such as, you know, humanitarian interventionism. You know, we can inter- interfere in your domestic affairs, but not the other way around. Democracy promotion. We can uh, interfere in your election process, uh, but you can't do the other way uh, around. So you see all of this. Uh, uh, you know, we, it goes under humanitarian law, and this is also what we refer to now as the rules-based international order, which is, uh, you know, democracy promotion, promoting human rights. Uh, all of this uh, allows uh, the U.S. and NATO to undermine the sovereignty of other states, but it only goes one way. So the problem is, whenever you have a a question, uh, let's say, you know, if a country wants to, uh, a region wants to secede from another one, uh, be it, you know, Kosovo, Crimea. Taiwan. Uh, under international law, we had the principle of territorial integrity, but then we introduced, you know, this uh, new idea of, uh, you know, self-determination under humanitarian law, and now we have two competing principles. So, which one do we pick? Uh, this is the rules-based international order because the U.S. will always pick the one in its power interests, uh, but it will refer to liberal values. So, for example, in Kosovo. Yes, we do self-determination. So they secede against, you know, ignore international law. In Crimea, no, no, then they have to stay within Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, um, you just pick, you pick and choose principles based on what serves power interest. So suddenly liberal democratic values goes from being this, you know, values of, you know, passive, pass, pacifying uh, governance, uh, you know, more peaceful form of government to becoming effectively um, uh, something that enables empire, enables hegemony, uh, enables one central power to rule over the rest by claiming full sovereignty for itself and uh, reduced sovereignty for the rest. So I think that this is why the, the legitimacy of the entire international order, which the U.S. has built up around it over the past 30 years is now collapsing because the economic relative economic strength going, the, uh, the military strength, the legitimacy, so across the board. So the question for the United States should really be, you know, does it want to facilitate a multipolar system now, uh, which it has a privileged position, or does it want to see reject it and push back? But then what it sees instead is the rest of the world trying to form it in opposition to the United States. So, you know, Indians, Chinese, Russians, uh, Iranians, Brazilians, all of them coming together simply to reduce dependence on the United States. So I think that this uh, is the world.
worst option for the for the United States. But again, in our simple-minded rhetoric, we call this anti-American, you know, because uh, you know if you support America, you say, you know, well, you know, they just. Uh, you know, fight this till the end. It's like supporting Israel. You know, then you promote this uh, suicidal policies. Uh, you know, support Ukraine. You know, fight to the last Ukrainian. No peace. This is the kind of logic we've been stuck in now with this very you know, tribal thinking. Yeah, and when it's when the hegemon is declining, arguably it's the time when it needs as many allies as it can possibly marshal, uh, not the other way around. But maybe that's just the nature of hegemons and empires. I'm talking with Glenn Dyson right now about geopolitics, changing trends in the global landscape that are triggered by the situation in the Middle East, but not just that. We'll get into that and more on the other side. I'm Patrick Kenningson, your host. You're listening and watching TNT, today's news talk. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay right there. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. So I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. Most people are unaware that bad bacteria can grow quickly in food that's stored, prepped, or cooked incorrectly, and that can lead to food poisoning. To avoid bad bacteria, always make sure your hands and cooking utensils are clean. Keep raw meat and chicken away from food that won't be cooked. Run your fridge at or below 5 degrees Celsius and use a meat thermometer to ensure your meat's being cooked to at least 75 degrees Celsius. For more tips on keeping bad bacteria at bay, visit foodsafety.asn.au. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's still TFI Fridays. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be continuing this discussion on geopolitics, on shifts in power in the world order. we got a fantastic guest joining us on the line right now. Glenn Deason is a geopolitical analyst and author. Uh, his work is uh, tremendous over the years. got a great archive. I encourage people to follow him on X Twitter, especially to get kind of breaking thoughts, uh, updates, and things that Glenn is looking at. He's joining us right now uh, on this segment and glenn you know before the break you mentioned bricks the emergence of bricks and we also mentioned this uh important concept of universal values are things that all countries can agree is right or wrong uh south africa has stepped forward and i think this is kind of significant within this conversation here they have been the one who stepped out first to uh, invoke the genocide convention. A lot of other countries could have done it, Glenn. South Africa has done it. Why is this significant? Well, it's uh, quite important from a, yeah, for a former apartheid state, of course, to do so, but also because they're part of the BRICS uh, club. And uh, 
um, yeah, also representing uh, to some extent uh, the, the Africans as well. Now, I think it's quite a significant move because uh, it, it has a huge impact, uh, I would say, in most places, even in Israel. I see the Israeli media already responding to it. Um, only today I read in the Haaretz that, uh, you know, they call this, this should be an eye-opener that, uh, you know, if Israel is associated now with uh, genocide, uh, this yeah, this will be very, very destructive to to its standing uh, all over the world. And, uh, of course, it's something that uh, worries the, the United States as well, as, uh, well, sitting over there, you probably would be more familiar with, because, uh, you know, this year will be, you know, elections in the U.S., uh, from what I understand, some are trying to label the president uh, while giving a nickname Genocide Joe. I think all of this, of course, is quite uh, un unfortunate to be associated with. So as soon as the, the genocide uh, uh, accusations move forward, uh, I think uh, it, uh, it it could be much more difficult to to support. I mean, even the Europeans kind of were a little bit supportive of ethnic cleansing to some extent because they they, they tried to sell it as, uh, well, for example, to convince the Egyptians to take in Palestinians. You know, if the Israeli bombed them out of their homes and pushed them south, you know, the Europeans thought we can convince the Egyptians to take them in, which, uh, but but now we see, uh, of course, this, this is not working out. Uh, if the alternative become genocide to kill them instead, then obviously, I think this label is something that's frightening many. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, quite significant, but of course, uh, it's also something that could blow over. Yeah. So you, you can compare this this uh, scenario in terms of invoking the genocide convention. Um, previously, for Bo Bosnia, this was also raised, and it seemed to get a result uh, in in Bosnia, although the circumstances were very different, because I think you had the United States backing that effort, um, if I'm not mistaken, to sort of place uh, Slobodan Milosevic. This is in the, during the breakup of Yugoslavia. Very different situation, two very different genocide convention uh, uh, incidents. And uh, right now, do you do you see the potential for uh, any European countries? Because South Africa has always been regarded like in an almost iconic fashion of Nelson Mandela. It's just this beacon of what's possible in the world, and it's like one of the last bastions of you know Africa breaking its colonial chains uh, by removing the apartheid regime. There can can you can any European countries get behind South Africa and help to to bolster? their efforts here or is this going to be a situation where they've been told don't go near it yeah well uh, i think in uh, you you referenced uh, bosnia because uh, in srebrenica there was of course uh, uh, the allegations of uh, uh, genocide against uh, bosnian serbs uh, but in that instance of course uh, the U.S. and the NATO countries, we were the one bombing the Serbs. So, uh, you know, we, we put our adversaries, we accused our adversaries of uh, genocide and and put, put them to trial. So this, of course, was a way also to to legitimize uh, our own military intervention. So I think uh, this is, of course, very different. And uh, I, I, I would be more optimistic if this would have happened uh, more than two years ago. Uh, but uh, but these days uh, I I don't think the, the United States would support obviously any such proceedings against uh, 
the the Israel and uh, if the Americans goes against it there's very little that uh, the Europeans will do uh, I think at most the Europeans will uh, increase well have more critical rhetoric of of Israel uh, kind of to try to be on the right side of history if you will uh, but overall uh, they, they wouldn't they would be cautious to take any big actions uh, against the United States uh, wishes so uh, again, it's a very different situation these days for the Europeans. For just to point out, for so many years now, at least past decade, the Europeans were talking about you know uh, European sovereignty, strategic autonomy, you know all these words which meant uh, more autonomy or independence from the United States. And uh, over the past two years, because uh, of Ukraine, a lot of this uh, completely collapsed. Obviously, at some point, this is going to have uh, a lot of uh, so some repercussions. Uh, and uh, others will come forward, which feels that, uh, you know, they're being, uh, as Macron earlier said, become vassals of the Americans. But uh, but, but for the time being, I, I don't see the Europeans having uh, much of an appetite for pursuing uh, such steps, um, which is a shame. Uh, well, which is interesting because, as you pointed out correctly, uh, South Africa, given that South Africa comes forward with this, you know, the country of Nelson Mandela, this is... Uh, um, it, it seems like something the Europeans would have supported before 2022. Yeah, big, big shift again there. And I want to talk about Ukraine. But before we do that, there's another thing we've been discussing on this program with different guests. But this concept of the axis of resistance, you talk to an American or even your average European, they really don't have an idea of what this is. And recent events, we just saw the speech of Hassan Nasrallah uh, just this morning and other addresses that he's made. Hezbollah as a, quote, non-state actor, um, a part of the axis of resistance, Ansar Allah, the, or the Houthis, as the West call them, uh, in, in, from Yemen. Um, th these are these are factions or, or entities that are behaving with restraint, timing, re reciprocity, almost like normative state actors. In fact, someone argued, Glenn, that some of the members of the axis of resistance are acting, showing more normative traits in terms of uh, statecraft than some of the great powers are on this. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the axis of resistance? And I want to get a comment on Ukraine before we wrap up, but go ahead, Glenn. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree that they have been uh, quite quite restrained uh, through a lot of this, but also part of it is because they they almost are state actors. I mean, if you look at the role of Hezbollah in Lebanon, they pretty much have become a state actor. Same as the Houthis in Yemen, they're pretty much, uh, they, well, they are the government, uh, the leading government, at least in the Houthi areas. So, uh, so yeah, they... They, they are, of course, taking uh, greater risks, but uh, at the same time, they're also showing some restraints in terms of, uh, uh, you know, calculating what would be the Israeli retaliations. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting, especially the the Yemeni's uh, effort to disrupt uh, Israeli shipping. Uh, effectively, they're imposing sanctions on on Israel, like the United States would do, and backing it up with with hard power uh, and it's actually making a difference uh, of all the international, the, the Arab countries could have done this, GCC countries could have done this, but none have. Uh, but Yemen, Yemen has of all countries, one of the poorest countries in the world on paper. So to me, this is a historic and uh, uh, I'm, I'm wondering um, if anybody will be joining in with them in due course or not. But even if they don't, they've already basically put themselves on the map um, as, 
you could say Glenn a force to be reckoned with uh, in their in their backyard in their neighborhood anyway. But um, very interesting development on on Ukraine, Glenn. Uh, things appear to be coming to a head. You you alluded to this earlier in our discussion that you think that 2024 is going to see a potential collapse in Ukraine as we once knew it. Um, what what do you see coming forward here? How is this going to transpire? What will happen to the Zelensky government? What will happen to the government? Full stop in Kiev right now. Uh, go ahead. Well, I, I think the, that the, it's, it's reached the final chapter. Now, well, the, the reason why this isn't becoming evident in the media is because the media has been quite uh, dishonest about this, I think. Because keep in mind that uh, that when the Russians first went in, in February of 2022, they had a very limited objective. Uh, they, they wanted to show military force in order to uh, compel the European, sorry, force the Ukrainians to implement uh, effectively a, an edited version of uh, the Minsk agreement, which, uh, you know, the, the NATO countries undermined for seven years. So, uh, and, and this worked. On the third day, they already agreed with the Ukrainians uh, to have negotiations uh, until they were, you know, sabotaged by the US and the UK. So this was, uh, this was initially the force they went in with, but it was a very small force, uh, you know, barely, uh, I think it was 100, 150. Uh, this was 1,000, this was all they went in with. So you can't conquer a country like Ukraine with this amount of forces, but that wasn't the purpose. But they didn't think that they would actually go to war with, uh, well, fight with Russia. But again, that's what the UK and US promised them. You know, we give you all the weapons in the world, but uh, then the known peace negotiation, then you just fight the Russians, you know, bleed them. Uh, however, my, my, my point is that uh, through 2022, the, the Russians began after the summer to get some real problems because, you know, the West started uh, pouring in weapons and the Ukrainians uh, showed that they were going to fight. So suddenly they needed, it was a miscalculation from the Russians. Uh, so they realized now that this they would have to fight pretty much till the end. And this is when the war ended, well, not ended, it, it changed because then it became a war of attrition because the Ukrainians said we'll fight to the end. But for the Russians, they will also fight to the end because they can't simply pull out. By, by comparison, this would be if you know, the Chinese or the Russians uh, established a military alliance with uh, Mexico and started moving in their military hardware. Under no circumstance would this be acceptable you know, so to the US. And it's the same for the Russians. You know, that doesn't legitimize anything. That's just the reality. So both sides will not fight till the end. So the Russians began then to do many things. They began to mobilize hundreds of thousands of troops. Uh, they began, you know, putting on a, uh, the economy in a war in this war footing. They import weapons from allies. You know, they begin to prepare a huge, massive army. They get all the drones they need, everything there is. And at the same time, the, the Ukrainians, they launched this offensive against well-fortified Russian defensive lines in which they essentially lose all the equipment they got from the West. So what happened in 2023? The Ukrainians completely exhausted themselves, their military, everything. Meanwhile, the Russians built up this huge, powerful army, uh, which, which now is ready to go. Uh, on a full offensive. So again, so if you look at our uh, people often look now at the, at the at the map and hasn't moved much, but but what uh, but behind the map, uh, you have to accept that this is a war of attrition. Usually countries take territory after the adversary has been exhausted. And at the moment, you know, the attrition rates are like seven or 10 uh, to one. That is for each uh, Russian, which is uh, each Russian casualty, you're going to have seven to 10 Ukrainians. And the reason is the Russians have many, many times more uh, artillery, equipment, uh, ammunition. They have, they dominate the sky through their air force. 
missiles, drones, their electronic warfare uh, systems. So across the board, all their weapons, they completely dominate and it only increases. Uh, and meanwhile, on the Ukrainian side, NATO says they don't have more shells to send. This is why America is sending cluster ammunition, because as Biden said, we don't have anything else. And there's not much more to send. And the Ukrainians now has also run out of manpower. So now they're starting to send women into the trenches. They, you know, more and more people are trying to flee the country. More and more are surrendering. And, um, you know, you can force people into the trenches, but then you're going to have more mutiny. You're going to have uh, uh, less motivated fighters. So uh, overall, uh, the, the, the situation seems to be deteriorating for, for the Ukrainians and the uh, for those who have been following over the past week, the Russians began to launch a huge uh, missile attack across Ukraine, uh, essentially destroying all, uh, all the factories, uh, uh, the different we weapon depots, uh, uh, any storage facilities. So uh, for me, this looks, uh, it, it seems as if the Russians are preparing something very big. Uh, they see that the Ukraine has been completely worn down. They've, on the Ukrainian side, the Russians have built up a huge force. I would expect that the Russians would start to go after territory at the moment. And uh, again, their objective, how far will they go? Well, it depends a bit on NATO. Their main objective is they want to have neutrality for Ukraine. They don't want NATO to expand anymore towards their borders. If NATO comes forward and says, okay, we can accept a neutral Ukraine, then perhaps we can get a deal. But if, if like now, uh, the US, UN, sorry, uh, NATO General Secretary, uh, sorry, Secretary General Ian Stoltenberg, he argues, you know, as soon as the war is over, Ukraine's going to join NATO. If this is what's going to happen, they're not going to allow uh, cities such as Odessa to fall under uh, NATO uh, influence. So if this is the case, they're going to take Odessa too. They're going to take the entire Black Sea coast from the Ukrainians. Again, it's a horrible situation for the Ukrainians, but uh, the, from the Russians' perspective, uh, they're not going to accept having any of the strategic territories either from military or economic perspective, end up in the hands of NATO. So uh, it's, um, yeah, I, th I think it's, yeah, it's going to be a very horrible year for, for Ukraine. And uh, hopefully we would have some diplomacy, some statesmen coming forward, but uh, I haven't seen any so far. Yeah, well, I mean, Stoltenberg blowing that dog whistle uh, for NATO is the one thing that's going to guarantee that Russia is not going to want to uh, change its agenda because if if it knows that down the road um, that NATO is going to push forward with the what their their plans are, then how can they effectively get any dialogue going with Moscow? So it, it seems like there's no diplomacy at all. Quick, thir uh, one minute, your final thoughts on that, Glenn. No, and I think this is what's been most disappointing for me is the, the dishonesty around this whole thing. Because for the past two years, we said, no, no, this has nothing to do with NATO. This is just Russia wanting to reestablish empire. Uh, but it's, it's been, for anyone who's been following this over the past 30 years, every American ambassador to Russia confirmed this is about NATO. Even Ian Stoltenberg himself uh, said in September of 2023 that uh, that uh, the Russians, uh, they, they said they would invade unless they got uh, a neutral Ukraine. And they said, oh, we, we're not going to do that. So we already, we, it, it's just a, a lot of lying around this. This is the problem. Because uh, anyone who seemed to be able to understand and explain the Russians, they are then accused of uh, legitimizing what they have done. So uh, it, it's uh, a lot of dishonesty and lying around this problem, around this conflict, which is undermines our ability to resolve it. 
No, very true. Very true. Look, this is developing. Uh, Glenn, we really appreciate your time today on TNT Today's News Talk. Glenn Deason, ladies and gentlemen, geopolitical analyst, author. Follow him on X Twitter, one of the best accounts that you need to keep an eye on there. Glenn, we really appreciate you joining us this week. Uh, thanks again. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Glenn Deason, we've tagged him on our posts on at 21Wire on Twitter as well. Just click there, follow there. Top there are news headlines coming up. And on the other side, we've got breaking news updates from the Middle East. Plus, Jeffrey Epstein, we're going to go on the ground to the Southern District of New York Court. Matthew Lee has got new breaking news on the Epstein client list. That whole story, documents unsealed. It's all coming up in the next hour, folks. So stay right there. We'll be back in a few.